Jeremiah chapter 6. And beginning in verse 16. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the word of God. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. I set watchmen over you saying, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not pay attention. Let's pray together. Gracious God, be merciful to us. Show us your will and enable us to do it. We trust not in ourselves, but in Christ the Lord and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Accomplish all in your holy will. We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Light dispels darkness. When the light of God's word shines into places of spiritual and cultural darkness, it transforms people. It transforms families, transforms nations. It doesn't matter how long the darkness has been. When light comes, darkness is dispelled. Like a hostile, renegade, usurper to the throne. It must submit. Darkness must submit. Bow its head and walk away in shame. Light dispels darkness. Darkness is the shared experience of people without light. Such was the case before the Protestant Reformation. The Bible wasn't known. In its place, religious superstition, religious tradition, and falsehood reigned. The Reformation brought God's Word and the Gospel back into the hands of the masses. Man-made traditions that had kept the people in darkness, in bondage for centuries, were now exposed by the light of God's Word. They could be seen for what they really were. Entire nations were swept in the wake of this Reformation. Those that were held captive in the darkness were now exposed to the truth and dramatic change occurred. Outside of the book of Acts, this is the greatest, and this was the greatest move of the Holy Spirit in the history of the church. Our world would never be the same. A Latin phrase, post tenebras lux, encaptured the entire Reformation, which meant after darkness, light. Here's what Psalm 119 verse 130 says, The entrance of thy words giveth light. It giveth understanding unto the simple. The Reformation was a back-to-the-Bible movement. Now, it was not a revolution. We must be clear about that. It was Reformation, not revolution. Revolution says, let's uh, get rid of everything. Let's start again. Let's start afresh. Let's bulldoze everything and start with something new. No, the Reformation was not a pursuit to find undiscovered territory, but a rediscovery of the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It was a returning to the ancient past. It was going back to that which was historically found in God's Word. I once read of a couple who bought a home on some land, I believe it was Texas, 
and arriving at the house and looking out the window, the wife did not like the fence because it obscured something of the view. The fence was about 50 yards from the house and she asked if her husband would hire a crew to remain uh, for a couple of days, remove the fence and all would be well. Well, that's what happened. The only problem was they woke up the next day and a large and seemingly ferocious bull was right outside their front door, banging on the front door, tearing up the property. The couple were obviously frightened and now captive in their house. The removal of the fence meant that the bull in the adjacent field, which they had no idea was there, could now wreak havoc. Fortunately, they were able to call the owner of the bull to get the bull under control, then call the crew, and there was laughing on the other side of the phone conversation, as you could understand, call the crew back to erect the fence once again, and for another three or four days, the crew were erecting the fence. All was well once again. There's a moral to the story. Before you move a fence, find out why it's there. Find out why it was erected in the first place. Jeremiah 6 says, Stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths. Where the good way is, walk in it. You'll find rest for your souls. The ancient paths are the tried and proven truths of God. Who He is and what He's done. We live in a day, an age of innovation. Changes, the changes we've seen. Even if you're 15 years of age or if you're 90 years of age, what you've seen is remarkable. What we've seen in the last couple of centuries is nothing less than breathtaking. Society has witnessed the move from the horse and buggy to the Concorde and indeed even space rockets. There's no doubting the progress. In the realm of information, just in my lifetime, we've moved from uh, physical paper maps, do you remember those, uh, to using our phones to get a voice telling us which d direction to go in the next 10 yards. What we have available, I was just using that feature last night, finding a place and someone with a voice telling me left now in 50 yards. We can learn about our world in ways that are so dramatic. Uh, you want to learn about a lion, you used to have to go to the library and go there and hopefully when it was open, you might have a question on Thursday night, doesn't matter, the library wasn't open until 9am on Friday, you went sometime on Friday and hopefully the book on the lion was not being used by someone else. Now, we can find out about the lion, a specific lion and hear it roar and see it and see it coming towards us. It's amazing what technology has done. But I want to make this point. Innovation is not always a good thing. Robert Schindler, in uh, March 1887, which was some time back in the Sword of and Trowel, uh, Spurgeon's magazine, wrote this. The content of the Christian faith does not continually change. That which is true is not new, and that which is new is not true. Again, the Reformation was a reformation, not a revolution. And the message was this, let's get back to the Gospel of John, to the Gospel writers. Let's get back to Peter. Let's get back to Paul. Let's get back to Jesus. Let's get back to the Bible. 
And let's discover the truth found there and build our life and our thinking on it. The reformers hammered stakes into the ground like pioneers, establishing the truth of God's Word in the everyday pattern of the life of the church. Central in the Reformation was a return to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel, which is the power of God. God has not said that His power is anywhere else. You want more power in your life or in your ministry, get a hold of the gospel and proclaim it. The gospel doesn't give you access to the power. It is the power of God for salvation. Can you say amen? Amen. amen. What is that gospel? The gospel about God, what He has done, who He is and what He's done. God, the second person of the Trinity, came into this world, was born of a virgin. His name was Mary. He lived an absolutely flawless, perfect life, fulfilling the law of God, the demands of God, what God required of His people. He was Israel in that sense, and He did all that Israel was commanded to do under the law. He kept the law. And then on the cross, He absorbed the wrath of God due to us as breakers and violators of that law. The Bible says in the book of Isaiah that He was hanging there not for His sake but for ours. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was delivered for us. By His stripes we were healed. He did it for us. He was the substitute, the Lamb of God. And as He hung there, the Father laid the sins of God's people on Him. The iniquity of us all. And He paid the full ransom price for His people. And He died in our place. The wages of sin is death, and He paid that wage for His people. And the gift of God is eternal life. And three days later, the Lord Jesus, who was dead, was raised from the dead, and is now at the place of all authority in the universe, so that He can now say, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And anyone who repents and believes this gospel is saved, delivered, rescued from the wrath that they deserve because the Son of God endured that wrath in their place. He is the substitute. I want to ask you, have you done that? Have you come and obeyed the gospel? There's that language in Scripture about obeying the gospel because it's a summons. Come, you must come. Have you come? Have you in, uh, come to the Christ who alone can save? We must be clear on the gospel and we must say it and print it and write it and sing it. Get that gospel out. An unheard gospel is not good news to anyone. They must hear. How shall they hear without a preacher? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. I appreciate the fact we've got the Bible in our hands, but we need to get the Bible in the ears of people and let the Holy Spirit do what He will to save those whom the Father has given to Jesus in eternity past. All that the Father gives me, Jesus said, will come to me. And it takes the power of the Holy Spirit to bring people to Christ. But He does it through the Gospel, not through mood settings and musings uh, musics of, of men and the settings of just get them in the right framework and they'll come into the kingdom. No, it takes an act of God and it takes the Word of God. You're born again of incorruptible seed by the Word of God. What you win them with is what you win them to. I want to win them with the Word of God that they might be saved. Because I don't want, I don't, I'm sure you don't want, fake Christians. To get a true one requires a miracle. 
and it takes God's word. So preacher, preach the word in season and out of season. In other words, when they like it and when they don't. When everyone's applauding, well done, pastor, great sermon, and everyone's walking away saying, I'm not going to hear you again if you mention this blood of Jesus thing. No, you preach the word. You stay at your post, no matter what men may do, and you be faithful. If he is pleased, it does not matter who's displeased. If he's displeased, it doesn't matter who's pleased. Amen. So, going to God's word, they got hold of the gospel, and it was not a new invention. It was a, return, a returning to the ancient past, the early church. It was the people of uh, the New Testament and the message of the New Testament. But they went further, these reformers, and they sought to understand what has God said regarding his worship? What should the worship service look like? And rather than throwing everything out, they went to God's word and said, is what we are doing found there? Is it found in scripture? With scripture as the standard, they are to come under it. And the worship service is not ours, it's his. It's his divine worship service, and he has outlined what he wants in the service. He says, the people must praise me. He said, there must be the reading of Scripture. He says these certain things, and we say, yes, sir, rather than, that won't work today. No, it's not about how many people can fill the, the pew. It's about people coming to Christ, and if they're going to come genuinely, it's because the Word was preached, because that's the means that the Holy Spirit uses to save his people. Preach the word. Well, your sermons are too long. Your sermons are too short. Uh, okay, but was the word there? The most important thing is, was the word of God preached? Some people are excited as preachers when some people say, that was great. I think it's better to just wait a little while and get God saying, son, that was great. I want that to be true. Where he can say, son, they may not have liked it. You might have lost a few today. But that was great. My son lost a few. You read John chapter 6. Never did he lose a true sheep. But he lost people who didn't want what he said. And the conscience that I can live with is when I lay my head on the pillow at night, on a Sunday night, people might have been excited and they might have left over what I said. But I know what I said was true today and will be true 30 years from now and after my death. I told you what the Word of God says. That's what church should be. That God would have the right to do what he wants in the service. What a thought. You see, everyone has an order of service. It's called liturgy. It's actually a biblical word. We shouldn't be frightened by it. And some people in various sectors, sectors of the church have been raised with a lot of liturgy in the sense of it looks like we do this every week and there's nothing to it. We just go through the motions. It's just something we do by rote. You know the word rote. It's meaningless repetition. Now, we need to be aware that that's a danger. And there's some people from that sector of the church who look at what the Scripture says regarding what should take place and they say, well, we don't want liturgy. I'm just going to say it's like saying, you know, I want water, but I don't want the wet. The wet comes with the water. You can't say to the waiter, I'd like some water, but can you hold the wet? No, you have a liturgy. We have a liturgy. Even in our private devotions, we have a liturgy, whether it's just, I read my Bible and say amen. That's a liturgy. That's an order of service, so to speak. And so the normal liturgy in many churches is you come in and 
Someone just strikes a guitar and you sing three or four or eight songs, and then someone greets you, and then someone gives a testimony, and then a video is shown, and then someone says something from the pulpit, and you sing three more songs, and you're dismissed. That's a liturgy. I remember being brought up in, there's this sector of the church of liturgy, 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 and we go through this every week, we say this every week, and it can become dull and repetitious and rote. I was on the other extreme. If you know something of my background, I was a pastor and dare I say it, a TBN host. I'm not sure it gets lower than that. Trinity Broadcasting Network. Hosting two-hour live programs, telling people to call the number on the streams, uh, 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 the number on the screen. My, my sins are many. <laughs> but that was the extreme. I went to a church, believe it or not, where it was actually said one time, it must really confuse the devil that there's not an order of service because he doesn't know where to interrupt. That was the thinking. And you have no idea where the service is going to go. You don't even know if you're the preacher. And that's how it was. And out of this little village church, they had more than 10, probably as many as 15, 18 international ministers that came out of this environment. And I was one of those ministers that grew up in that realm where you went to church and you came ready to preach. That's how they interpreted be ready in season and out of season. <laughs> be ready at all times. Two in the morning, be ready. All right, let's go to the Gospel of Matthew. Yeah. And so at age 17, 18, I was preaching in that environment because I felt that the Holy Spirit was quickening me because my heart rate was going up and uh, uh, my, my hands were a little bit more shaky and thought, that must be the Holy Spirit. So I got up and I got up and did stuff and said stuff. Now, I hope you understand, that's not me today. Amen? Praise God. And so there's that extreme and there's this extreme. I believe the middle is where the Bible is, and that is think through what you do in the service. That was an anathema to me. You think through. You think through. You know what we'll be doing eight minutes from now? Wow. Some people have a problem with written prayers. I don't. You actually can think through what you're going to say. And mean it from the heart. <laughs> and you might be quoting Saint whatever from whatever, who lived wherever, but because the words resonate in your own heart, you can say them and they be meaningful. What we don't want is meaningless repetition. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. You know what I'm saying? We can do that, but let's avoid that. No. Every word of the Lord's Prayer is precious. Our Father. Oh, I, can, I can call him Father, who art in heaven. I don't see you, but you're there. Hallowed be your name. Do you know that's an actual prayer, a petition? Let the name of the Father be hallowed. We could go on, but we've got to get to other things. What we understand as we read our Bible is that God takes the worship service seriously. We've already had in our reading this morning Leviticus chapter 7. Leviticus is a hard book to read through, but it's very exciting if you're a Levitical priest because it's a manual on how to stay alive. It really is. And Nadab and Abihu tried something new. They mixed things that should not be mixed 
in the worship service and God says, you're dead. He takes it seriously. Now, because that does not happen in every service, we kind of think that God's got over that. Let's be reminded it was the New Testament where people died in the service, Acts chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira, that's New Testament. All they did was lie. All they did was lie about what was in the offering. Oh, we gave everything. We, gave, we are so committed. And Peter said, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? You've lied not to men, but to God. And that was the last thing they did. That's New Testament. As we look through our Bibles, one of the principles that comes out of reading the Bible is found in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 40. I'll simply quote it. All things should be done decently and in order. Decently and in order. Now in context, it's talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but I believe it has application on a broader perspective regarding order in the service. And there's no listing or order of a service in the New Testament. We have the written record of something called the Didache, which was a first century document that described the church services of the ancient church, and it was very simple. But we don't have a structure outlined in the service. It does not say, do this at the beginning, let the second song be this, sing eight songs or four. There's nothing like that. But there are principles, and that's why theologians call this idea the regulative principle of worship. You ever heard that phrase? The regulative principle of worship, and it goes like this. It asks the question, what does God say that he wants in the service? Let's do that and only that. Once we understand that, as I spoke to one theologian on the phone a few years back, I said, tell me what you understand as the regulative principle. He said, it's to make sure that pastors don't bounce orange beach balls down the center aisle. That would be an innovation. So it keeps people on track, it keeps preachers on track, it keeps the service on track, and here's the reason why. God knows more than we do. And God has said, this is how I will be worshipped. Now, in Total contrast to that is the mood of the day, started with a man named Bill Hybels, carried on by a man named Rick Warren, and it's really the opposite of this on steroids. The idea is you go around and knock on doors with paper in hand, ready to write down the answers that you find, a, a clipboard, and you ask, what kind of service would you come to? What kind of music? would appeal to you? What would be the length of the service? How long would the sermon be? Have you noticed Moses was never asked to go around the tents of the Amalekites and find out what kind of service they'd come to? He was never asked, nor was anyone in Scripture asked to go and ask the people that hate God what they would come to. I was once uh, pastoring in a a church and a, 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 we had a, the greet time halfway through the service before the sermon and there was a man who was very dear to me uh, he actually uh, hosted a radio program here in Phoenix and he had invited me to be uh, on the show and then later to actually host the show when he was absent when he wanted a week off he would actually give me three or four days of hosting the show so I thought he was a great friend and still in contact with him somewhat but he came at uh, the greet time and said, great to see you, John. I said, great to see you. I won't say his name to protect the guilty. 
But he uh, said, well, it's good to see you, but I won't be back. I said, but you haven't even heard the sermon yet. No, I won't be back because my wife sent me and had one thing in mind. She said, find out what the kind of music is. If it's not heavy metal, we won't be going. That was it. And this was what I thought was a mature Christian because he hosted a live two-hour Christian radio show. You think he'd know some things. But that's the mindset. I want to go to a church of my choosing. I want to go where the music is good as I see it. Rather than what God says, he says it needs to be reverent, it needs to be full of Bible truth, it is a glorification of him, it's songs about him rather than about us, it's songs as we see in heaven of worship of the Lamb, it's not anything else, oh how good I am, it's not Jesus is my girlfriend kind of songs. Do you know what I mean by that? I'm not the first to come up with that, but you can... Uh, come across words in, in the songs that could be either for the Lord Jesus or for Tanya. Just substitute Tanya, oh, how I love you, I need you, can't get along without you. No. The reformers, going back to the scriptures, were saying, no, what does God say? And what does worship look like in the Psalms? What does it look like in the New Testament and it's all about God and his glory and the gospel and worthy is the lamb who was slain that's what we'll be doing in heaven and so I don't believe we should design our worship services for people that don't exist seekers that's a strong statement but the Bible says there are none Romans 3 11 says there is no one who seeks after God. Literally, there is no God seeker. So why would you design a service for people that don't exist? But people are seeking. No, they're not. They're running from the true God. They're not seeking him. Oh, no, I know someone. Four years ago, he's a Methodist. Three years ago, he's a Mormon. This year, he's a Buddhist. He's really seeking. Well, why? He's a Sikh now. <laughs> No, he's found four different avenues to run away from God, except he could be in the kingdom nearby if he's a Methodist. <laughs> I jest. Hey, look, the Lord has a sense of humor. Look in the mirror. Amen? Amen. Amen. <laughs> Praise the Lord. If you can't say amen, say ouch. Praise the Lord. Ouch. Amen. So... Religions of man are attempts to run from the true God. That's the nature we're born with. And we must understand that. After Adam's sin, he fell, and all that would come forth from Adam and Eve are born sinners. We don't, uh, we're not sinners because we sin. We, are, we sin because we're sinners. And therefore, by nature, we don't want the true God. And every attempt at religion, other than being based on the true God and the true gospel, is an attempt to hide from the true God. But there is one seeker. I said there were none. There are none found among men. There is one seeker. John chapter 4, verse 24, Jesus said to the woman of Samaria, God the Father seeks those who will worship him. He seeks those who will worship him in spirit and truth. 
So there is a seeker. And the Father is seeking true worship. Worship of the heart, worship in spirit, worship in passion, not rote. But he also wants worship in truth, in reality, that which conforms to reality. It needs to be true the scripture to honour him. He's declared, this is who I am and this is how I will be worshipped. So, everyone has a liturgy, an order of service. That word liturgy can mean all of life, worship, but it can be used in a more refined way to ask, how does God want his people to worship? What we do as Christians, and what they did in the Reformation, was come up with another phrase in Latin, semper reformanda. You ever heard that? You'll see it in the bulletin. The actual long description is Ecclesia Reformata, Semper Reformanda, Secundum Verbi Dei. Of course you know that off by heart. What it means is the church reformed and always being reformed by the word of God. Not reforming according to culture. Not reforming to to that which is popular. But all in every generation, coming under the Word of God and asking, are we still doing that which is pleasing in His sight? And where we need to change, we change. We don't change the Word of God, we submit to it. The Word of God has the authority. So, in your bulletin you'll see these words, worship on the Lord's day, a holy dialogue. Worship in the Bible was a dialogue between God and His covenant people. And we believe this pattern should be implemented in churches today. Our service begins with God addressing his gathered people in his solemn call to worship. Hearing his call, we respond with joy and praise. Notice that. God is always the initiator in worship. He's the one seeking. If you find yourself now seeking him, which I trust is true of you, understand God first sought you. We love him because he first loved us. He came after you. You were thinking, I was seeking him my whole life. No, no, no. Until you, you were found, you were running from him, and he sought you and found you. Praise the Lord. God reveals his holy law, and we recognize our guilt and confess our sins. We turn from sin and trust the finished work of the perfect Savior alone. He assures us of his full pardon. God pronounces his word, and we believe and renew our commitment to him. He serves his people a family covenant meal at his table, and we believe his gospel promise and feast on him. We then respond with thanksgiving and praise. Our worship ends with God addressing his children with words of benediction. Do you see the rhythm? Do you see the focus? It's God speaks first. We respond in prayer. God speaks again and we respond in praise. We pray. It's this relationship and it's this ongoing divine service and included in it are certain elements. Michael Brown, pastor of Christ United Reformed Church in Santee, or Santee, California, wrote this, We do not need more movements, more conferences, more celebrities. We do not need the next big thing. What we need are more churches committed to the way disciples have been made since the apostles planted a church in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. The slow-going, unspectacular, ordinary ministry of the Word 
and sacrament, I would say ordinances, where God is raising dead sinners and creating a living communion of saints. Oh, what's special about King's Church? Nothing. We're an unspectacular people doing the ordinary things. What we have is a very spectacular Savior. He's the one who's the star. He's the one who's the head. He's the one who's the focus of attention. We're ordinary. And I hope that there will be thousands of ordinary churches in our land. That's my prayer. God, raise up pastors and elders and people that want what you want, the ordinary things that will, will, that will give glory to God. We're not to get creative. See Nadab and Abihu, it says in my notes. They tried that and were killed. They offered strange fire, unauthorized fire before Yahweh. God killed them. So we ask, what does God want? Well, what God wants, as we read through our Bibles, we're going to go quickly through it, is he wants us to meet together. That's news to some. And the meeting together is the corporate gathering under the oversight of elders who are qualified. They're not better than anyone else. They're just qualified to be elders, shepherds over the flock. And they are in charge of the flock. And their job, their assignment is to be true to the great, great shepherd as under shepherds under him, knowing that one day they will answer to him. It's not their church. It's his church. It's the church of the Lord Jesus, not the church of Jeremy or some other name. It's the church of Jesus. And their function as elders is to serve the true chief shepherd and he be pleased with what takes place. So we meet together. We come and we sing and speak of his worth and why he's worthy of praise, thanksgiving and glory. In your bulletin again, it says, We gather with God's people each Lord's Day to exult in God's truth, thrill over His mercies and graces, and worship His magnificence out loud, visibly, publicly, together. As we do, our desire is to read the Word, preach the Word, pray the Word, sing the Word, and see the Word in the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. That's so uh, much the case that this is shocking news to most people that Christians and church, there's a connection. Hebrews 10, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. God is not, uh, though he saves us individually, he puts us in a family and he wants us to be under the nurture of uh, the community of saints. That should be a habit, using that phrase found in Hebrews 10, which is the habit of some. What? Missing. No, unless we're providentially hindered, we should be in church. It's the first uh, day of the week now because of Jesus' resurrection. The early church met on what we call Sundays. And that was the start of their week. They started their week that way with the gathered assembly. They started with the delight of the gospel. They started being at rest. Those who have believed have entered into rest, the book of Hebrews says. And that's the way to look at our week. Rather than we work five days and then two days are ours, 
and this Sunday thing encroaches on us. No, God says, the week is this. Day one is the Lord's day. You come as a gathered community. Maybe you've been beaten up all week. Now it's a place of rest. Now it's the place of the gospel. Now it's the place to be reminded of who God is and what he's done. To be reminded that the Lord is your shepherd, you shall not want. He makes you lie down in green pastures. And the green pastures are in the life of the church. Jesus said, I'm building my church. I will build it. He's doing it. So settle it now. Make it a habit. Come. You're here. I'm talking to the choir. Keep coming. Amen. It's the most important hour or hour and a half of our lives. Tim Chester wrote this, to be a Christian is by definition to be part of the community of God's people. To be united with Christ is to be part of his body. The assumption of the New Testament is that this always finds expression and commitment to the local church. Sunday morning starts the night before where we prepare our hearts. We seek at least to get good sleep as much as it depends on us. Then we come to the divine service. It's his service. It's for God. It's not for seekers. Because there aren't any. We've established that. The Bible says there aren't any. I'm good with that. So, you're seeking God. Be very sure God sought you. We wouldn't want the true God outside of God working. One man said this, the idea idea today is that you design the church for unbelievers and that is completely foreign to the Bible. Not just Old Testament, New Testament as well. R.C. Sproul said this, it is the task of the pastor and of the church to feed the sheep. If someone who is not a sheep comes in, that's fine, but we're not going to change the menu and give the sheep goat food. So we have an order of service. Why? Everybody does. We just want to think ours through. Based on scripture, we asked, how do we meet together, knowing that we are to meet? How should the meeting proceed? It should be shaped by the word. It should be shaped by the gospel. We've established that. Before the service, so that the rhythm of worship is not interrupted, we've decided to have the announcements then. Before the service officially starts, so that the actual worship service is this divine church dialogue. Then we greet one another. Why do we do that? Well, Romans 16, 16 says, greet one another. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, the kiss, I believe, is a cultural mandate. (laughs) Rather than a universal one, that would be very strange in our culture. It wasn't... Uh, in theirs. It's not strange in France, but we're not in France. When would we do that? Well, when we see another Christian at the mall? No, I think it's natural to say when we gather. To follow Christ is to follow uh, his word and to love other Christians. And uh, it's a sign of saving faith. First John 4 verse 20. It grounds our worship in reality, loving God and loving people. So we've established that. Then we come to the worship itself. Now worship, John MacArthur outlined it as, worship is our innermost being responding with praise for all that God is through our actions, attitudes, thoughts and words based on the truth of God as he has revealed himself. 
Jonathan Gibson writes this, Worship is the right, fitting, and delightful response of moral beings, angelic and human, to God the Creator, Redeemer, and Consummator, for who He is as one eternal God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and for what He has done in creation and redemption, and what He will do in the coming consummation, to whom be all praise and glory, now and forever, world without end. Amen. That's defining what worship is. It starts with the call to worship. God, again, initiates worship. And this specifically is the triune God calling us to worship by means of the Scripture. God speaks through the Scripture. God the Trinity. If you were in the ancient world and someone invited you back to their house and uh, you accepted the invitation... You might go, say, in the city of Ephesus back to someone's home and uh, the husband, the father of the home said, we're here as we're gathered to honor the goddess Diana. That's your cue to leave. You'll be served these feasts and in everything Diana will be honored. That's your cue to leave. Here in the Christian church, it's God saying, I'm the triune God. If you've got a problem with that, okay, but that's the only God who's going to be worshipped in this service. It's setting the stage. And the service begins and ends with the triune God addressing us. He calls us to worship, and the triune God at the end of the service gives us his benediction. Bene, good, diction, word. We have dictionaries which define words. Benediction. The benediction is... God's good word to us. He pronounces blessing on us. Who does? The triune God. The service begins and ends with the triune God, the triune God addressing us. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That excites me. I never had that when I was over there. And if you've had it since you were over here, don't do it by rote. Say, oh, the triune God is blessing me. He has all authority in the universe. He's sovereign over all. And he's blessing me? How precious is this? Scripture is read as he calls his people to worship. Again, he initiates. You see, we come on the invitation and summons of the king. Again, that's a biblical principle. We don't just run into the presence of God. We come because he calls us and has given us the invite in the person and through the work of his son. We're invited guests summoned to appear before him. And so the service does not start with music. It does not start with prayer. It starts with God calling us to those things. Prayer can follow as a response to his call. And as you see this, you see the richness of the divine worship service. Psalm 47, 5, God has ascended with a shout, the Lord with the sound of the trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. That's God addressing humanity, saying, when you come, sing praises. Book of Psalms says, enter his courts with thanksgiving in your hearts, his gates with praise. That's the right protocol. If you were to go to England and wanted to, and were invited by the king now, to have time with him. There is a protocol. That was true when the queen was reigning. There was a 10-minute instruction before you ever got to see the, the queen as to how you will approach her. You don't talk until she talks first. Interesting. 
You don't offer your hand to hand shake unless she does so. You wait for her invitation. You don't pat her on the shoulder and say, great to see you. There's protocol. There is heavenly protocol. And he says, you don't have to go to the Amazon and get some fruit that only 3% of the population will ever see. No, you come with praise and thanksgiving. That's the right protocol. We rejoice with trembling. There should be a reverence even in our rejoicing. When the queen enters a room, all are in attendance have to stand. Men are to bow, women are to curtsy. USA citizens need not comply with this, we're told. Only the queen's subjects under her rule. That's protocol. When first meeting the queen, this was the case, I'm sure it's the case now with the king, she should be addressed as your majesty, and then afterwards as mom. So the first time you address her, it's your majesty. Afterwards, you may say, mom. Hey, great to see you, Lizzie. That wouldn't have worked. We can come boldly to the throne of grace, to a king who's far more superior and far more majestic than any earthly king. He is the king of all kings. He is the Lord of all lords. We sing songs that are theologically rich and are true. If it's not true, we shouldn't be singing it. It should be dripping with Scripture or else Scripture-based truth. Hymns that have been sung through the ages, for sure, because church history didn't begin in 1947 or even 1980 or even 2002. And these songs should be congregational rather than performance. Again, that's what came out of the Reformation. Before uh, the light came, darkness was there and there was no singing. None. And then it progressed to you watch others sing. There's this performance and you admire the performance. No, the Reformation says the Bible speaks of none of that. It's the congregation sing. We sing. All the people praise Him. Clap your hands, all ye people, the Bible says. Sinclair Ferguson said this, Worship is deformed when it becomes vicarious performance rather than congregational and participational. Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another with psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to the Lord. Ephesians 5, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Psalm 149, praise the Lord, sing a to the Lord a new song. If you check that out, the new song was always a song of redemption and his praise in the congregation of the godly ones. So, corporate, congregational singing. There's a place for individual singing outside of the gathered community. Acts 16, you remember Paul and Silas singing in prison. But the emphasis of the New Testament is on the congregation singing. The Reformers knew it. I'm tempted to go on because there's so much more to cover. 
I'll just say this. In the Reformation, there were reciting of ancient creeds of the church. And this was to show forth the fact that what we believe is not something we've cooked up, but because truth is true now and will be forever, and has been true, the people of God has sung the truth about who God is, and recited the truth of who God is for centuries. In things like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, when we understand that each word is poignant and we understand that each word is based on Scripture, it never rises to the level of Scripture. What doesn't? Creeds. Scripture alone is the authority. Creeds and confessions of the church, while wonderful, are never on the highest authority. Only Scripture is. Can you say amen? But oftentimes you'll read in a confession, first line of the confession, the Bible alone is the Word of God. Something like that. You see, you can, you can say, look, my creed is the Bible. Well, a lot of cults say that. The question is, what do you believe the Bible teaches? I'm not into creed. No creed but the Bible. Well, do you realize that itself is a creed? No creed but the Bible is a creed. It's a saying. It's a summary. What a creed does when you put it out on paper is allow you and others to analyze it and ask the question, is this scriptural? And These creeds of the church are faithful summaries of what the Bible teaches, which is why we say them. If you were in a political club and you uh, were a Democrat or Independent or Republican, you'd come to the meeting and they might just say, this is what holds us together. This is what we believe as Democrats, as Republicans. So as the church, we say this is what we believe. And historically, these creeds are so powerful and so in the mind of Christians that oftentimes these were the last words on the lips of Christians before they were martyred. They're about to be burnt at the stake. I believe in God the Father. And they went through the creed. It was what they had to acknowledge or say before they were baptized historically. When you understand that, it's, it's amazing. Some years ago, I've heard it again recently, Jonathan Gibson relate the fact that he had lost his little child in death very early in life. And there was this little casket that had to be lowered into the ground. And he and the mother were present, of course. And there was a reciting of the Apostles' Creed. And with tears, I'm sure, rolling down his cheeks, he was able to say, as his wife did, that little line, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. Do you know that's meaningful? So meaningful. I'll see her again. I believe in the resurrection of the dead. Why do you believe it? Because the creed say it? No, I believe it because the Bible teaches it. And the creed merely affirms what the Bible says. So, could this be done in a rote way? Yeah, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. But it can be the most meaningful thing that gives comfort to a family. He'll come again to judge the living and the dead. No matter what the despot is doing in our country, whatever country we might be from, he might be killing Christians, he might be burning, at the stake, burning them at the stake, he might be Nero himself. He's not the one in power. And one day he will answer to the king of all kings. 
the Lord of all lords, the president of all presidents, the emperor of all emperors, the Lord Jesus. We'll stop there and we'll continue this. But I just hope that you are thrilled with what we've seen so far, that God can and does regulate his word and we are to regulate our service according to his pattern. Let me finish with this quote. Knowing that we don't have to choose between reformation and revival. I want revival, how about you? I believe it's the only answer for America. The people begin to understand who God is and the gospel is and have the ramifications of all that. But we don't have to choose between revival and reformation. John Williamson Nevin said this, real revivalism is the extraordinary blessing of God on the ordinary means of grace. The preacher just preaches the word, but something happens because the Holy Spirit superintends that word, stirs the hearts of his people so that they want the true God and no one else. That's the work of God. The preacher the week before might have preached similar words. He might have preached it in another place and not seen any results, supposedly. But when the Holy Spirit comes and attends the word, people are desperate to hear a word from God. Tell me what the word of God says. I want to be saved. How do I get saved from the wrath I deserve? And the word comes, and it's the balm. It's the thing that soothes. It's what we hunger for. I pray that there'll be a great revival in our land, but not outside of the true proclamation of the scripture. Let me finish with Charles J. Brown. He was a minister in the Church of Scotland during a season of revival. And he quoted an eyewitness account of the power of God's grace in the Scottish churches at that time. Here's what he wrote. It was a common thing. As soon as the Bible was opened, after the prelim it's hard to say, preliminary services, and just as the reader began, here you will observe it was the simple reading of the word without preaching, just the reading of his word. Such was the power upon the minds of the people that it was a common thing. As soon as the Bible was opened, after the preliminary services, and just as the reader began, for great meltings to come upon the hearers. The deepest attention was paid to every word as the sacred verses were slowly and solemnly enunciated. Then the silent tear might be seen stealing down the rugged but expressive countenances turned upon the reader. The word of the Lord was precious in those days. It's not by might, it's not by power, it's by my spirit, says the Lord. Rather than this highlighting the eloquence of the preacher, it elevated the Lord Jesus in the sight of the people. How does he do it? Through means, the means of the divine worship service. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, stir our hearts, for true worship of the true God. 
Be glorified in this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.